Hello and welcome to Crux Investor. We're going to be talking in a moment to Mark Chalmers, the CEO of Energy Fuels. We were lucky enough to catch up with Mark about a month ago and since then people have been contacting us with questions which they'd like to ask him so we're going to include that today. We're going to cover off the imminent section 232 announcement, their vanadium uh, production, the pricing in the market and the general sentiment um, with regards to uranium in the market. So hello Mark, how are you? Very good man. Good to be here today. Well, th thanks for joining us again. We, we had a great talk uh, a month or so ago, and it, the the video is really well received in the marketplace. And people have been sending in questions that they'd like you to uh, help them understand uh, certain topics. Uh, and if we can go through those today, I'd appreciate that. Yeah, not a problem. Okay, so I'm going to start with the with the big question there, which is. Um, around the recent insider selling. People are concerned that the directors know something perhaps they don't. What, what happened there? Look, uh, we've got a lot of attention on um, uh, Ben Eshelman uh, selling shares, but it actually isn't Ben Eshelman selling the shares. Uh, ben represents a block of uh, about, I think it's something like 40 family members, and they all have shares that, that, that uh, basically report up through him as a director because he basically um, is, is, is part of the family, but the director for the family. And so if, for example, one of the younger kids decides he wants to sell some shares to buy a car or something and sells those shares, it reports up to Ben Eshman. So I really want to make sure people understand that we, there is no real true insider selling um, at this point in time. And, um, and that is the case. So, you know, I, I hopefully that uh, alleviates some of the concerns that insiders are selling because we know something. Um, you know, what we've said to the market is, is what we know. Right. And w were you aware of this uh, trade coming up beforehand or, you know? Yeah, I think I, I got like a, maybe a, a 24 hour notice or something that they were going to sell. But I am also looking at it on how to better address that. Uh, you know, for the full transparency and, and, and so people don't see it as negative. Right. So, that, so basically people should read this as there's no reason to be concerned. You don't know anything with regards to the 232 uh, decision. No, absolutely not. And, and uh, as I said, you know, I'm sure that some of the questions will be about 232 and I'll certainly give everybody an update of, you know, where we're at. But I think we have been uh, very transparent to the market. So Okay, so we've we've seen a we've seen a couple of press releases uh, from yourself, and also you are um, recently, you know, quite a, quite I think quite uh, aggressive uh, in terms of positioning with regards to Russia and China. What's going on at the moment? Is there is there, is there any more insight? The DOC have made their submission. You've got the president's got ninety days. Is there any kind of insight? Well, look, as we've reported uh, publicly, um, yeah, the, the, um, the report is on the president's desk. Uh, he has 90 days to, um, uh, to make a decision. Now, that decision could be giving relief um, or, you know, or, or it could be not. Uh, we think we've uh, fought a good battle. We've punched above our weight in terms of how we've communicated the national security concerns. Uh, and, and also, I think we've, we've, we've communicated well that... Um, you know, right now, uh, approximately 70% of the uranium produced, newly produced uranium is coming from state-owned enterprises. So, you know, that should shock people. And, um, 
you know, we think uh, this is right up the alley of the administration, uh, but we don't know exactly what uh, decision they'll make. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're very uh, uh, positive and, and, and confident that we'll get something out of this process for the right reasons. Um, but again, you know, we're not, I'm not Donald Trump. If it's rejected, if you don't get something out of it, what's the plan? Look, it would it would be an unfortunate uh, outcome, um, you know. And, and as I said, I, I, I think that um, you know this is this is right up uh, the Trump administration's alley. Um, you know, we consume one third of the world's uranium and producing less than one percent. Uh, the state-owned enterprises are increasing. You know, the tensions with China and Russia, and Kazakhstan. Are, are growing. So, um, you know, but, but yeah, no, I think it, it'd be a bit of a kick um, because we think it's such an uh, outstanding petition and ideally suited for Section 232. So, but we do think the fundamentals are improving on their own um, in the world. And so we're not building the company around 232 only. Do you, are you aware of any factors, any reasons why it may be rejected? I mean, if, if it was rejected. Well, look, I, I think, uh, you know, UR Energy and Energy Fuels are small companies uh, that are basically pushing this, this wagon, uh, this wheelbarrow. Uh, there are some big companies, you know, the utilities are huge, you know, um, uh, companies and, and, you know, you get some pressures from Canada or Australia. Um, so, uh, you know, we're, we're up against, um, you know, a pretty formidable line um, uh, that, that may oppose this. But, you know, and I think, I think the, the, um, the issue is, though, that the Section 232 um, law, um, you know, basically has to be reviewed on its merits. And, uh, and as I said, we're not trying to, to harm our allies. We're not trying to harm the utilities. But, um, you know, it still goes back to what I said before. You know, we are becoming increasingly dependent on foreign sources. And as the production is reducing, reducing in Canada and Australia, it's increasing in these other countries. So, you know, I don't have any reason, but, uh, but we've, we've, we've taken on a tall order here. And I always, I meant to ask you last time is, why did you settle on 25% as a number? Why not 50? Why not 100? You know, one, one, one first aspect is uh, we, we settled on 25% because um, we need enough uranium to have some critical mass in the United States to where we have a competitive market. You know, we didn't want this to be just geared around, you know, one company or two companies or, you know, we wanted to have enough production uh, to support uh, four or five or six different producers in the United States. So it was competitive. Um, the other thing is, is that we didn't want to overly burden um, the utilities and the nuclear industry uh, with too much production. We wanted to allow them to, to benefit from a certainly production from our allies and certainly a certain amount of production um, from some of our foes. So, so the 25 was, um, we believed it was enough critical mass to preserve the industry uh, in a reasonable way. Right. And, and, and what's your thinking around how that works? Okay. That's going to be produced domestically and bought domestically, or can you go out in the spot market and supply domestically? I mean, how, what are the restrictions? The devil's in the details on these things. And, 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 and I know exactly how we think it could be uh, implemented and, and administered. Um, 
there would certainly be a period of ramp up. Uh, we, we, we want uh, long-term contracts because we need the surety of, of making our investments that we know we're going to be able to spend that money now and get some return on our investment uh, over the course of the next few years. So uh, there would be a ramp up. Does that mean you can go and spot, as in they are not obliged to take 25% day one, or does that mean that they are, but you've got, you can supply product from elsewhere? Without getting into details, because that's really confidential of what our details are, um, um, you know, it would be 25% of newly produced uranium in the United States. Um, as I said, with a ramp up, with various ways to, to deal with things like the inventories and, um, you know, other, um, you know, uranium products, uh, in which there are many, which there are many. You know, when we're talking about uranium production, U308, um, you know, that's just one product. You know, you've got uh, UF6, you've, you've got enriched uranium, you've got, you know, lowly enriched, highly enriched products. Um, so um, we, 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 we basically have a framework to address all those issues. But the, the key driver is long-term contracts, ramping up production over time um, to ensure that we have a viable uh, industry here in the United States that has the critical mass to make sure that we do not get caught out from a national security perspective. Right, and, and who enforces that or who monitors that? Look, at some of these things are, um, I guess, kind of yet to be determined. We don't know what's in the recommendations from the Department of Commerce um, you know, if you look at the uh, steel and aluminum, and I don't really like to use that as an analogy, you know, once they decided they were going to, um, you know, impose tariffs, and again, we're asking for quotas, uh, you know, it's taken a lot of time to sort out exactly how that works. That's one of the reasons that as a company uh, with us and UR Energy, we spend a lot of time on, uh, on the remedy uh, from our perspective to make sure that whatever remedy is put in place, assuming we get one, um, actually achieves the objective, which is uh, having uh, long-term uranium production in the United States, while particularly we are a top consumer in the world. Let's go, let's be positive. Let's say it gets signed off. Are we any sort of sense of, you talk about a ramp up, I mean, what sort of period of time are we talking about? Well, I suppose you've got to get the initial street party out of the way first, but when the dust settles, what's that look like? It would probably take three to five years, maybe six years, to um, to get uh, up to speed. Um, the U.S. Uh, industry is actually in better shape, in my opinion, than it was uh, 10, 12 years ago, because we have um, you know more permitted properties than we did back 12, 13 years ago. Those that are producers or or, or would be soon to be producers would have to compete for those contracts. Um, and uh, those contracts would be at, have to be at prices high enough, again, to incentivize production. So um, we think that we're in better shape than um, you know, most people say that we are. We get criticized routinely that, oh, you can't make 12 million pounds, you can't make 10 million pounds or something of that order. Um, but um, the industry uh, back about uh, four, five, six years ago was doing about five or six million pounds. But but a lot of projects then were just starting to spool up, like UR Energy uh, Lost Creek project wasn't fully permitted and, and, and able to produce in, uh, 10 years ago. Uh, Nichols Ranch was not able to produce 10 years ago. Um, uh, UR Energy or UEC uh, has uh, some permitted properties that haven't produced yet. Um, so, you know, a lot of things changed because there was a fair amount of investment 
um, you know, going back on the boom of a six, seven, eight that never was fully capitalized on. In terms of, you know, what this could mean for, you talk about allies and, you know, it's, it's the, 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 the language that, that you use here, there's allies and foes. So do you think that the, just the you know, the 232 is going to have an impact on your allies, like, you know, Australia, like Namibia, well, I guess with Rossing, that's going to be a slightly different story, but um, Canada, for instance, do you think there's going to be more of an emphasis on working closer with them, the U.S. utilities working closer with them, or is it just purely on price? You know, our allies are our allies, Australia and Canada, um, and, um, you know, we think that those are very favorable jurisdictions to do business with. I mean, uh, you know, when we uh, talk about the fair price of a pound of uranium, I mean, uh, Tim Gitzel at Chemical, I know Tim very well, he's an, ex he's an outstanding individual and professional. I think he's done absolutely the right things with Canada or Cameco to position it for the future. You know, they really need $50 plus under contract going forward uh, to justify new uh, production. Um, you know, so, you know, look at, I, I, I think that um, the, the, the government, um, United States government understands the importance of our allies. So uh, as I said, this is not directed at them directly, but, 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 I tell people that, that the uranium production in Australia and Canada, uh, if the prices stay in that $25, $30 per pound, um, there may not be any production in those countries or very limited production. And so they need higher prices. Cameco needs higher prices to survive and produce newly produced uranium. Um, so um, that's another reason why the Section 232 is important because um, the current pricing is unsustainable for the United States and our allies and our, um, you know, these, these, these state-owned organizations, you know, primarily Russia and China and Kazakhstan uh, will continue to produce and they'll get a larger percentage of that production over time. Okay, so you mentioned a few minutes ago utilities. It's, it's again, it's sort of a delicate relationship you've got there with, with the U.S. utility, presumably ones that run uh, reactors or power, power stations. So what, what would um, the Section 232 and general price uh, increases mean for the utilities in the marketplace? What does it mean for consumers? What's it mean for your relationship with them? Yeah, look, look we, had, um, we had an economist uh, look at, uh, you know, some different pricings to the utilities, and, and he came up that it would increase uh, the cost to the average um, um, uh, consumer, uh, uh, residential consumer, around $250 to $3 per year or something like that. So really low cost. I mean... You know, compared to uh, some of these other 232s like steel and aluminum stuff, this is a very affordable 232. Um, I mean, the utilities, assuming we got the 25% quota, they're still going to be able to purchase their uranium 75% of the requirements from others at whatever those prices are. Um, you know, and I, I, think, I think one thing that's important when you look at the cost, um, people start saying, well, the cost is um, from 25 to $30 per pound uh, up to, say, in the 50s or 60s, you know, it's costing us all this money. But the 25 to $30 is not the value of a pound of uranium, newly mined uranium. It's really about $60 per pound. Right. If, if Cameco needs north of $50 per pound, people should be comparing 
from $50, $55 a pound to $60 or $65 a pound. And then that $2.50 or $3 per residential customer average goes down from there. So, so you know, this is, um, this is where uh, people tend to, 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 to bend the truth here on, uh, in, in my opinion, uh, you know, that the, the, the extreme cost of the Section 232, I mean, some people have said, well, our Section 232 is going to put these nuclear utilities out of business. And, and I, I honestly don't think that's the case. I mean, we closed out um, uh, our contracts last year, um, our long-term contracts, and, and they were north of $60 per pound. Wow. They were north of $60 per pound. So now, this is an important fact that you should have, that you know, we have the, the 99 uh, commercial nuclear reactors, um, but we have like 80 nuclear-powered ships and submarines. So we have, if you add some of the research reactors and whatnot, we have nearly 200 reactors in the United States, 200, and we're currently uh, producing, um, this year will be less than one civilian reactor's worth of fuel load. You know, again, that should absolutely shock people. It's been a tough few years for everyone, but you're in a good position. You've got cash, about 50 million bucks last time we spoke, maybe slightly under. Um, you're America's largest producer. You've kind of got a vanadium revenue stream. You've got the cleanup services optionality there. Um, you've been kind of cost cutting over the last few years, kind of get it back down to the bone, but to get yourself ready for when it kicks off again. So I mean, what, what does that actually involve in terms of how much can you cut without affecting your ability to quickly ramp up? Yeah, well, that's a delicate balance, um, Matt. Um, I mean, we've tried to um, not overcut, um, but these projects do not sit well. Um, they do deteriorate. Um, and uh, the best thing for them is to, to run. It's kind of like a car if you put it in your backyard and you know, it, it, it doesn't improve things or a boat. You know, you gotta get out there and use them. Um, we, we have cut back on our people. We've currently got about 100 employees, full-time employees, but we've got probably 20, 30 uh, temporary employees on top of that. Um, and, and we have maintained these properties in, 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 um, in good working order. But um, yeah, if the gun goes off, uh, there's a lot of work we have to do. And the first thing we have to do is start hiring people. Um, a lot of the um, restart um, dollars uh, will be working capital to, to kind of get that momentum going. There would be some new capital required, uh, particularly with the ISR. We have to put in the well fields to get started. Um, additional development on our underground mines, uh, some work at uh, White Mesa. So we're really in a very, very good position, uh, but there certainly uh, would be some issues where there'd be some deterioration where we'd have to do um, you know, some improvements or upgrades uh, to accommodate for you know, lack of activity for the last few years in some of our properties. But, but your current cash position, you're sitting on this, this, this pile of money, is that enough to get that startup program going? You're not talking about raising capital at some point, are you? Or I am very much a supporter of having a very strong balance sheet and a strong cash position. Um, you know, we probably, you know, if, if, if the gun went off, uh, we'd look at different ways of financing ourselves. But uh, I want to have a very strong position. I do not want to draw our cash balances down uh, uh, overly low because I don't want to be in a position for desperation financing. Uh, you know, we, um, um, you know, we, 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 we just want to be very strong there. So, um, 
uh, you know, but there's different ways of, of raising capital. There's probably a way of uh, getting some short-term financing uh, that would reduce dilution to the shareholders uh, that would be uh, perhaps very attractive to us um, because, you know, a lot of this initial, um, uh, these funds to get these mines going, you know, you'd start getting a return in 12 months or 18 months. So it's kind of ideally suited for like a line of credit of some sort, uh, potentially. Okay, okay. We, we, and if the price is appreciating, presumably the cost isn't too onerous. Yeah, and if you have long-term contracts, you know, you're a lot um, you know, more attractive for, for getting that. How long is a, a long-term contract in, in the uranium space? Oh, they can vary, but you know, we're really hoping for five to seven year type uh, a term contracts. So, um, you know, we, uh, you know, we, we're, we're really uh, looking for longer term contracts so that, you know, as I said, we have some runway um, to work with. So, I mean, just on that. So last year was a big year for spot purchase, about 88 million pounds. What does the price need to get to before you can start getting into conversations about long term contracts? Look, for us, um, we pretty much um, take the same approach as Cameco that, you know, uh, and north of $50 per pound under contract, that, that starts making a difference for us. I mean, if you start looking at, uh, you know, $40 or $35 or, you know, low 40s, uh, it, it, it doesn't make sense. You know, um, you know when you start looking at uh, going forward costs, um, you know, those are really, um, um, you know, certainly uh, lower than the true cost uh, of producing a pound of uranium. Uh, you know, I worked for um, uh, Pallet and Energy for nearly five years and was in charge of operations for, those were two, uh, the Langer Heinrich project was, a, was an excellent project. But if you looked at the fully loaded costs with the capital uh, overhead costs and whatnot, um, I, you know, I'm confident when I say, uh, you know, we need uh, north of $50, $60 for even the best projects fully loaded. No contract conversations until the price moves. Yeah, um, you know, we, we, we've got to have contracts. We're not going to, I mean, we could, we could produce, uh, we have some projects that going forward cost, uh, you know, probably as low as $25, 30, 35, but that just be, uh, um, we'd just be high grading in our process without any return. Actually, losing money because your 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 fully loaded costs. If you lose, you know, look at the, the the capital expended on those projects would be greater than that. Let's talk about the duopoly that is Cameco and the the, the, the Kazakhstan uh, Kazakhstanis. So, do you think that they are controlling the pricing at the moment, or do you? Because in your press release, you talk about your adversarial combatants, the, the, the Chinese and the Russians. So who's controlling the pricing at the moment? Because there's a kind of OPEC feel to this. It's always a lot of factors. I mean, um, you know, we, we have been competing with a lot of inventories on the market, um, you know, um, from around the world. I mean, you know, a lot of the, the producers geared up to produce more uranium than when Fukushima, Fukushima happened, you know, in the the, the, the um, you know, protracted um, uh, restart of re uh, reactors in, in Japan, you know, there certainly was a, a, a fair amount of um, a tradable material out there, um, you know, and I think, um, uh, you know, that certainly kept the prices down. Uh, but then, you know, the, uh, I guess the renewed optimism is, you know, when, when these, these uh, producers have 
pull back their production, reduce the newly mined uranium. And, and this is again where Cameco's uh, uh, taken a real leadership position and, and, and decided that we're gonna, they're gonna buy rather than produce. Um, so, you know, I mean, it, it's, um, it, it's a number of factors, but um, I think that, um, um, you know, in, including the Kazakhs to a certain extent, um, you know, they're, they're realizing that they cannot just, you know, pour uranium into a softer market. Uh, the Chinese are a little different. I mean, you know, when you look at the Chinese, uh, you know, in Namibia with Husab and, and, and Rossing, you know, those are high cost projects and they will continue to be high cost projects going forward. You know, their, their, their approach to this whole uranium business, in my opinion, is more geared on security of supply. They wanna have their own uh, uranium production and, and, and really, um, you know, nobody else is gonna run those projects uh, in these market conditions unless uh, you're somebody like the Chinese. Right. So, so the Chinese are not, not impacting, they're not flooding the market, they're, they're capturing supply for themselves. Yeah, but, but it's, it's sort of different um, dynamics for the, the Chinese. I mean, I think, I think one of the key issues here is, is um, the Russians have um, a national program to support the nuclear fuel cycle from mining all the way through the various stages they need in nuclear power and selling fuel. Um, the Chinese basically have the same thing, and um, um, and and so they're they're really focused on having those capabilities from A to Z. Um, the United States used to be in that that position, used to be, um, you know, going back uh, you know 30 years ago or so, um, and they've let that deteriorate uh, to where they no longer have that. Now the problem with that is. Um, you know, there's various stages in those countries um, that, that probably are not economic, but the government thinks it's worth doing that and having those full capabilities. Okay. Meanwhile, um, the United States has let their, um, their, their capabilities deteriorate, you know, hugely uh, to where they're dysfunctional now, and, and they don't have that support. So the, I think the, um, these, these groups like the, the Russians and Chinese and the Kazakhs are being a lot more strategic about the future than the United States has been in the last uh, 10, 20 years. But are they being strategic about their own needs or are you saying they're being strategic about how it impacts your needs, the US? The Russians uh, are very proud people. I, I speak Russian, I've spent a lot of time over there. Um, but uh, the nuclear fuel cycle is something they can be number one. And they wanna be number one. And um, because if the U.S. doesn't want to be number one, well, Russia wants to be number one in the nuclear fuel cycle. So, um, you know, and, and they're on their way. Um, they're well on their way. If they're not number one, um, they're, they're, they're certainly there or getting there and plan to continue to grow that position. So, um, you know, it's, um, it's complex, but, um, but I think that, um, you know, when you become the king of, a market, it gives you a lot of uh, direct and indirect benefits. But if I come back to that pricing question, which is how much control does Kamako have? How much control do the Kazakhs have? You know, how is it influenced by the Russians? The Chinese seem to be very self-absorbed. Who controls this? Is it, is it supply and demand 
you know, working as it should do, or are there other controls? You talked about geopolitical a second ago, you know, and how much control do you, do you have? Is that why you did the two, three, two option? Yeah, look, look at, I, I think, I think that um, a, a number of different parties can, you know, have a pretty substantial control in different ways. I mean, and again, you know, look at, look at section two, three, two, two small producers file a petition, kind of turn the market upside down in, in, in the world. Um, that's an example of two small producers being able to, to uh, uh, inflict a fair amount of uncertainty into the market. I mean, certainly if Cameco decided to go out and buy all their uranium they need for 2019, this next month or two, uh, that's going to move the market. Um, you know, the Kazakh production, uh, you know, it's really the uranium industry is a very small industry. You know, it, it, uh, at least uranium production, um, very small industry. So, you know, it, it doesn't, it, it, you don't have to necessarily be a, a, a huge, you know, uh, government entity or something to to move it around. Right. So, but you know, you know, actually, who is actually controlling it right now? Uh, I'd say it's you know a number of different people, including us. I'd I'd, I'd agree with that. I think that uh, Section Two Three Two has really shaken things up. Um, it's put a lot of doubt in people's mind, and people are waiting around to make decisions as a result. Um, so it's quite you, definitely punching above your weight. Yeah, and and you know, and as I said, I mean, right now the United States is producing, um, you know, the, the the smallest amount of newly mined uranium that it has in like seventy years, seventy years, you know, and 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 that's exactly what Section Two Three Two was put in law for. Exactly, we're a company that is going to try to punch above our weight everywhere, everything we do. Um, and, and, and part of that's my own personal competitiveness, but uh, uh, we're going to go for, you know, the, the best returns we can for our shareholders wherever we can get them. But we're going to do it in an ethical way. You know, we are ethical people. We're focused on delivery. Um, you know, we're not trying to manipulate things, uh, you, know, um, you know, unduly, uh, but we are actually, uh, you know, pushing for, you know, solid outcomes for our shareholders. I hear you. So, but I, I bet Cameco wishes it had a Section Two Three Two equivalent available to them. You know, you know, and, and that's that's what's interesting with uh, a number of our the people that um, you know criticize us, particularly other producers outside of the United States, and they say, "Oh, I don't like Two Three Two. And and but if I'm having a beer with them and I I, I take them over to the side, I say, "Look, if you had a Section Two Three Two, you would have filed it, wouldn't you?" And almost every single one says, absolutely, I would have done the same thing. So, absolutely. Uh, you absolutely. know, the United States is in a, a certainly a, a different situation than a lot of countries. I mean, you take Australia, you know, they don't, I mean, the only uh, nuclear uh, power they have, they have, you know, a research reactor, they don't have any uh, nuclear uh, navy. Um, you know, so, you know, the United States is, is, um, you know, in, in a very unique position and where it stands as a superpower and, and also where it gets its energy, both for the power plants and, um, you know, for the Navy. Right. So let me ask you a question about pricing. Would you rather have stability in the pricing? It stayed, you know, 60 to 80 bucks, or do you want to sort of see the peaks of, you know, 2011? The, the, the peaks and the valleys, it gets pretty hard to plan around. Uh, I, I would like to see some stability. I, I'd like to have, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a significant but reasonable proportion of long-term contracts that are stable. Uh, but I, we wouldn't commit 100% of our, our sales to long-term contracts that don't have 
you know, the ability to share in some upside uh, going forward. But, uh, you know, I think that high volatility, it doesn't matter where really what business you're in, um, doesn't necessarily help people. So I, I, I like some stability. And fewer players in the market as a, as a result, I imagine. Well, yeah, look, um, you know, as I said, your aim business is small. I mean, if you, you go around the world and start adding up, uh, you know, where the uranium production is and who's producing it, you know, there are not many players. And, um, but, but as I said, um, you know, the United States and, and, and people, a lot of people don't understand this, that the United States was uh, the largest producer of uranium back in the 70s and the early 80s, has a long history of production, uh, geopolitically stable. Uh, in, in most cases, even very difficult to get permits, and it's litigious. Um, so, you know, this is a proven district um, that can produce and be competitive from a world standard. And, um, you know, there are some uh, areas that can produce lower, but it's competitive world standard. When I say that the true value of a pound of uranium is about $60, the United States can produce in that type of market. So where do you think this puts exploration companies, especially those without permits yet? Do you think there's going to be more rationalization in the marketplace? I mean, in terms of, uh, you know, merging and, you know, mergers and all that, look, at a lot of that has happened, um, but I think there's still some room for that. Um, I, you know, and I think, I think one of the things, too, that's happening, that there are some, uh, you know, very uh, exciting uh, new discovery. Actually, the next-gen uh, aero uh, deposit, very exciting new discovery. Um, but, um, you know, the, the issues of the permits, um, uh, you know, how much time is that going to take? You know, what is the ultimate cost of construction of those plants? Um, uh, you, know, you know, the scale-up of those projects, you know, is still a bit uh, unknown. Um, um, you know, I, I think again, uh, NextGen has got an excellent deposit, and and I, I know Lee Curry very well. Um, but you know, some of the other projects are less certain that are are new. Uh, but I do think that there there could be some um, M&A going on. I, I think one of the issues with these these projects that are in the expiration mode or trying to get permits is they've got a long time ahead of them and a lot of money to spend. And that's a lot of dilution to shareholders or a lot of debt or the combination of both of those. Yeah, I think, I think that's uh, wise words indeed. So it'll be a case of survival of the smartest or the fittest. Yeah, exactly. And, and that goes back to why we're going to have a strong balance sheet. You know, it's, um, yeah. um, you know, I mean, even when you look at this industry, um, you know, a large percentage of projects uh, fail. Um, on, on a number of reasons, but, but one is technical risk. Now, I've done over a dozen projects in my life. I've never had a single one fail technically. I've had uh, issues with uh, uranium pricing, but I've never had a technical failure, but a lot of them will fail technically. So I want to get onto vanadium production. You, you put a press release out recently, You've been doing a bit of work on, the, on your vanadium properties. Um, can you give us an update on those? Is everything going according to plan? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the key issue with our vanadium production has just been the volatility in vanadium prices. Um, you know, they went up to nearly $30 a pound, and now they're down, you know, $10, $11 per pound. Uh, so that, that's been the biggest challenge for us. But, we, you know, we were not, not expecting the volatility, but it was a little more volatile than we had expected it. You know, we thought that uh, it would be a little stronger, uh, than it is right now. Um, 
you know, we are producing high quality, uh, probably the best quality we've ever produced. Uh, we're producing, um, you know, around 150,000 pounds per month uh, or north of that towards 120 uh, or about 200, uh, between 150, 200 uh, in that range. Um, uh, so it's gone very well. Uh, we, we're, we're pleased with our cost structures, but, um, but you know, the, 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 the bouncing between 10 and, and 30 is, is, is yeah. pretty extreme, even though, you know, vanadium prices, you know, even a few years ago, were down, you know, $253 per pound. So it's naturally a very volatile um, metal. First, Fisher, I think you said it, you called it a wild rise last time we spoke. But it, so, what would the price need to get down to before you'd reconsider your your vanadium projects? Look, um, we haven't, uh, you know, informed the market exactly what our production costs are. Um, but I can tell you that, um, you know, as I said, we're we're, we're pleased with what our cost structures are um, uh, with our pond recovery and uh, even with our test mining. Uh, it is our goal to be, um, uh, you know, one of the world's uh, lowest cost producers, primary producers. I mean, Largo is down around, I think, around four or five dollars per pound. Uh, it'll be my goal to get towards that. Um, and um, but but I, I would say that as as long as Vanadium prices are, uh, you know, ten or north of ten, we'll continue to produce from the ponds. Uh, maybe lower than that, but. Um, um, you know, so that give people sort of a general indication of of, of, of where we are, um, but but we do plan to continue to develop uh, our vanadium production capabilities and focused on uh, you know low production costs to be as sustainable as we can be in a highly volatile sector. That's a nice generic statement, but what what how do we work out how do, how do we get a sense of you know how things are you got the tailings you've got you know with, is it three projects well we've we've got uh, probably six or seven different mines but but the reason it, it it's it, you can't just say what it costs is um uh, you know a lot of these projects are uranium vanadium mines and so it depends on what the price of uranium is when right. you start looking at uh, uranium prices uh, of $30 per pound, you're going to be a lot more dependent on the price of, of vanadium. So um, the reason um, is it can be highly variable, and that's why I'm a little loose of there. Yeah. Um, if you start looking at uranium prices of $50, $60, $65 per pound, um, that, that pays probably 60, 70% of the mining and processing. So, yeah. um, you know, that's why I'm elusive is, is um, it, it depends really on the uranium prices largely for the long-term um, uh, uranium production and economics of production from our projects going forward. So do you think that there's going to be a vanadium deficit anytime soon? Okay. I mean, because the price, as I say, is very volatile. It's back, back, you know, up 30, back down to 10. Can you see or forecast any sense of what, what the future looks like on the market? Yeah, look, look, uh, um, Everyone seems to be wrong on the vanadium, but um, I think the main reason that it dropped off so quickly was um, uh, was the China's, um, you know, not you know uh, fully uh, regulating and monitoring these uh, rebar standards. I think when it pinched up to thirty dollars uh, or near thirty dollars, uh, people thought that was going to go in, uh, you know, in an absolute way, and I don't think it did. Um, so, you know, there hasn't been a lot of new production come online. Um, 
so I think this is something that, um, you know, is really, uh, the volatility as of late has really been driven largely by the Chinese and, 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 and how they implement uh, this yeah. rebar standard and also some softening of the, the China economy. So, yeah. um, okay. so I don't know if that helps, but that, that's my, my main um, belief right now on why we've seen the volatility we have. Okay, okay. And with the, I mean, with regards to toll milling, have you been approached by any of your neighbors uh, to provide services? Yeah, look, we, we've been approached by a number of different um, groups. Um, you know, they want a toll milling agreement, and um, I've been changing the tact on that front. I've been telling people that if they have a property that we um, believe, um, you know, may be economic in this, these current circumstances, uh, we'll consider a joint venture. If they want line of sight uh, ability to have, uh, you know, improved uh, sort of priority access to the mill, we'll do that on a joint venture basis um, uh, or consider it on a joint venture basis. Uh, that we do that for a couple of reasons. One, it's our mill and a lot of these smaller uh, companies, you know, have, you know, market caps of, you know, 10, 20, 30 million dollars and we've got a three, four hundred million dollar mill. Um, the other thing is, is that, you know, when we're operating in, in um, you know, Colorado particularly, uh, you know, in Utah, um, you know, it's a, it's a very sensitive um, environment to operate in with the regulators and with the public. And if we are uh, in joint venture and we have 51% and we're managing that joint venture, I can be assured that we're going to be doing things at the highest possible standard from an environmental perspective, a permitting perspective, and a health and safety perspective. So that's one of the reasons in the change of tack to the joint venture approach. If we actually just buy uh, uranium ore from um, these smaller operators, you know, what if they don't have all the permits? You know, you know, what if they do something with those projects like pump the water out of their mines uh, when they don't have a discharge permit? You know, so part of our approach is protecting our interests. Okay, seems, seems reasonable. So I, mean, I did mean to ask you specifically about LaSalle because it was a question which one of the, you know, the, the viewers sent in, which was, you know, what, what's the actual status there? I, mean, I know you sent a press release out, you're quite pleased with the numbers, but can you talk specifically about LaSalle? Yeah, well, we're still doing uh, some of our test mining, um, but we're, we're also doing work to um, uh, sort of maintenance work that they're opening up um, various parts of the LaSalle mine, the Pandora mine, uh, over the beaver mine um, to make sure that those um, those mines are in uh, good working order, uh, have multiple areas that uh, in a restart circumstance, we can have multiple areas that miners can work in so we can ramp up production quicker and faster. So, um, you know, but we're still kind of going, um, you know, step by step um, cautiously because um, we really need the long-term uranium contracts to give us that, um, to take out those, some of those bumps uh, to, to go into full commercial production at those sites. Right, so you're, you're cautiously moving forward. Exactly, we're cautiously moving forward in the test mining and the maintenance mode of getting those mines uh, ready for an increase into commercial production. Right. So that says to me, what you've just talked about says to me, you've, you've kind of got your hands full with all of the assets you currently have. There's, is there any intention to expand beyond the US borders? Have you identified any other targets or is it just, let's focus on what we got? Yeah. 
Look, look uh, you know, I think, as I've said, I've worked all over the world. I know most of the projects. I've operated a number of them. Um, um, I'm certainly not afraid of, of, of jumping the, the U.S. border because I've spent half my career mining uh, mines uh, outside the United States. Uh, you know, it, it, it's kind of my, um, my belief that if we do get relief from Section 232, um, that will, um, you know, put us in a better position to do that. You know, if we're in production sooner, quicker, with uh, positive cash flow, um, you know, that is going to put us in a very strong position in the future for um, merger and acquisition activity, particularly outside of the United States. So um, let's just talk about, let's finish up on a positive note. The sentiment in the market seems to be very positive. I think nuclear is being more and more seen as a clean energy, a green energy. I think you've said that, others have said that, but there's always been some resistance in the marketplace. Um, you know, you've got people like Bill Gates and even Elon Musk to a degree talking about nuclear as a, you know, part of the solution um, along with other renewables. So what's your hope for this space over the next 12 months? Yeah, look, I think um, certainly this positive sentiment coming in and, and um, from Elon Musk and, and Bill Gates, I mean, those the people listen to them um, and follow them. Uh, you know, so I do, I do think there is um, uh, a reemergence and a, a recommitment of uh, a number of countries and, and, and political leaders and, and, and private, uh, you know, industry leaders um, that are basically, uh, you know, supporting and again, continuing to endorse the importance of nuclear power in the world. And, and I think renewables are great. I think that, um, um, but they, they, you know, they have their restrictions. They're making great strides. But if you're really serious about, um, you know, global emissions and global warming, but particularly global emissions, you cannot get there with certainty without nuclear power as a uh, significant component of that. Uh, but it, but with like all uh, power uh, sources and stuff, it, it, it's a mixture and it depends on where you're at and how many people you know, you're trying to supply electricity to, you know, the, the size of the populations. Uh, you know, there's a number of variables and you need to look at this uh, objectively to come up with the correct mix uh, for the, the, the circumstances at the time um, and, uh, and evolve uh, as new technology emerges. Right. So I think that the next year or two is going to continue to improve, even without relief under Section 232. As I said earlier, the world market is improving. We were just tired of waiting. We were tired of waiting, and we had this, this, this you know, Section 232, and uh, we elected to submit the petition. And I have no regrets of that or doing that. Well, it, it will be interesting to see so that we've got 80, 90 days to go. So it's just been submitted by the DOC. Is that right? Yeah. You know, and, and look, you know, is it 80 or 90 or is it uh, five or is it one? You know, we don't know. You know, we don't know how long it will take for a decision. As I said, we, 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 we believe we've, we've done the right thing. We believe that uh, we've got a good chance of relief. We, we've been very confident, but, but we don't know. And, and you know, there, 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 there's a range of possibilities here that we're waiting to get uh, more clarity on. 
Mark, thanks very much for going through that in, in, in detail. Some of those questions, like I say, are from the, from the viewers and, and uh, fans of, uh, of energy fuels. So thanks for answering those. But it sounds like you are moving ahead. Obviously, 232 you know, will happen one way or the other, but the market seems to be growing, and that's good for energy fuels investors and potential investors. Yeah, thank you, Matt. And we're here for the long term. And as I said, I want this to be um, the star performer in the sector in the world. Now, appreciate your time. Thanks, Mark. We'll catch up with you again real soon. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Matt. Bye. Thank you very much for watching our video. We do aim to give you informed and intelligent information with which to make your investment decisions. So if you liked what you just saw, please give us a thumbs up. And if you want to see more insightful, in-depth, honest, and unbiased interviews, then please click the subscribe button. So thanks again for watching, and we look forward to seeing you again soon.